Okay, so this is going to be the second to last session. We are, this is going to be a very brief overview, but I wanted to, I think this is important to go through at the outset too. Again, we're, we're uh, validating the authority and the absolute authenticity of the Bible. Okay, all right. So the first thing we're going to do is we're, we're going to talk about using the authority of Christ to authorize the Bible. Now, remember last week we talked about the presuppositionalists who said, who were basically saying the Bible says that it's the Word of God, and therefore we need to just take it at that point. And remember, we saw that that was circular reasoning. And this seems, on its surface, on the surface, to be circular reason because we only, the only way we know Christ said that the Bible is inerrant or was inspired by God is in the Bible. So it seems like circular reason, but we're going to see. That it's not. Okay, we're going to go through this and we'll see that it's linear. Um, the only way we know Christ taught the inspiration, yeah, that's what I was saying. So is this circular reasoning? There is a linear uh, mode, which we will see. Okay, by what basis do we ascertain Christ's authority? In other words, what is the source by which we know him? The only way, the only way we can know him at all, really is through his word. That's the only way we know about him. That's the only way we know him okay that his doctrine his person his work his teaching is how we get to know him and therefore even can believe in him without that we are not we don't have anyone to believe in there's nothing there but from which to believe uh, churches have had a wide variety of councils and creeds some of which have been altered throughout time and contradicted itself this is going to be huge and we'll return to this uh, but the source is and must be only the scriptures, so its credibility is essential, right? Because this is the only link by which we know who Christ is and what he said and the things he did. Remember, in Luke's account, he says, O most excellent Theophilus, you know, the former account I made to you uh, of all that Jesus both began to do and to teach. Remember, those two things are together, what he did and what he taught. But the only source by which we know that is the scriptures, so the credibility is essential so we're okay so may, just like we were saying last week many in the church have tension between trusting scripture and having a skeptical view of scripture because of these criticisms that we are going to kind of see have no valid argument okay we are going to see that somewhat again this is a brief overview but the, I, I have plenty of sources if you want to you know, increase your study here. I just want to show you kind of a fly by, you know, bird's eye view of this, as it were. Okay, now what is our argument? Our first premise is the Bible is basically a trustworthy historical document. There are investigative ways of histography which, by which historians determine the reliability of historical texts. We had talked about this somewhat last week. Well, let's go ahead and go into this. Um, but let's see. Yeah, okay. The first step, then, especially to the non-believer, the first step to, the, to a non-believer is to not to prove the authority of the scripture, necessarily, but it's basically basic reliability, as it compares to other historical documents that have to go through these same tests. Okay, that's basically what I'm saying. However, inside the church, this is completely different. If we cannot rely on the trustworthiness, 
trustworthiness of the Bible, we have no foundation for our faith, right? Just like we, we were just saying, okay? This is important, and this will play a part. Okay. We've discussed some theologians who have doubted the Bible, which we'll get to, like Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, and others, but we're going to look at Karl Barth a little bit. Uh, the standards of historical invest investigation is empirical, okay? This, is, this isn't you know, just remember we were looking at rationality and empiricism, right? Rationality is that which you can deduce or come to the conclusion of just using your reason, your rationality. Everything is cognitive kind of a thing. Empirical is that which you can gain from the, with the senses. So this is hard, fast, true. You know, this is validated through empirical means, scientific means, okay? like archaeology and things of that sort, which we're going to see a little bit. I know I said it, but I figured I'd give a little, <laughs> a little uh, glimpse into that. So, obviously, scientists can't verify empirically the existence of angels, right? Unless they find some, you know, putrefied wings, you know, of our, you know because in the account of Gabriel coming to Mary or Gabriel coming to Zechariah or whatever, you know, there's no way to empirically prove that. You know, other than, again, finding some angel swings or so. But there, however, there are many records in Scripture that can be empirically verified. And again, this is a growing thing. We do not stay here, but this is a growing deal. This is just for this section. Next week, the conclusion is, is really fun to me anyway. <laughs> okay, Sir Ramsey, I've talked to you about him. In the early, early, 20, in the early 20th century, he was a skeptic at first, and he was determined to disprove Luke's account in the book of Acts. Okay, so again, he was skeptical. He, he did not believe in the testimony, and he went out to really disprove it. At the end of his journey, he determined that Luke has the best credentials of any historian in antiquity. You talk about Tacitus, you talk about Pliny, you talk about Josephus. Uh, uh, there, there are many that, that, that have been criticized and, and looked at through these same means that, that have been found to be in error many times. Luke's, every time, every time a spade of dirt is turned, seemingly, in Palestine, it proves, it proves the Bible. All these people want to go out, and because what we're going to see is because archaeology and empiricism is actually proving uh, the existence or the authority of scripture, that's why other people went to other modes, such as naturalistic theology, uh, uh, philosophy, Hegelian philosophy. Again, we're going to get into that a little bit, but again, I'm just kind of throwing these things out here there for you to search out more. I'm just going to give you kind of a synopsis, so to speak, like Luke. Okay. Uh, okay, so he had the best credentials of any historian in antiquity. This is very important. So Luke was a uh, physician, but he's really better known as a historian. He's the most validated historian in all of antiquity. All of antiquity. You talk about any... The only means by which we know about Caesar are historical documents, right? And, you know, to the extent that those can be reliable, we can, we can know who this person was kind of thing. It's the same thing. The credibility of the source is essential in what kind of information you can gain about the subject by, of, of whom they're um, searching, kind of a thing, or validating or invalidating. So, uh, as we discussed last week, historians and theologians have de departed from empirical evidence such as archaeology, which is ba basically what I just said. 
In church history, this is essential. In church history, there has never been another time the Bible has been so criticized, yet has been the most verified. Again, remember when I was talking about um, um, Calvin's view of the antiquity of the Bible? It's been around for literally thousands of years. And the copying, there was so much care taken in the copying. Kings would write it down, all sorts of things. And no other uh, source, no other book is like that. Well, um, and so... That was long before this, the last 200 years of criticism. So the, and there's been no time in history, really any document, but especially the Bible, has been criticized so much. And even despite the criticism, in fact, on top of the criticism, on the back end of the criticism, it's more, it's more verified. I mean, if Calvin would have had all the tools of archaeology and everything, I mean, this would have been a slam dunk. It should be a slam dunk now. But this is just assumed to be wrong. Remember when I, uh, we were talking about whether miracles can be proven, you know, empirically kind of a thing. And they had, their problem is it's just scientifically impossible and there's no way to empirically verify it or falsify it. Remember, we even kind of talked about that. But it's just very important that, that we have modes of verification that pe these people are now ignoring. That's, that's basically the point, but we're going to, again, build into the authority of Christ to determine the authority of the Bible. Okay, we have established through many different scholarships the basic reliability of the Bible. Again, historiographers, uh, um, archaeologists, different scientists, theologians, in, insofar as kind of comparing these accounts, you know, what the Bible is saying, and then what, you know, this, these historians are saying, a bunch of different kind of cross analysis as well. There's been, there have been many different studies regarding the Bible. Many, many, many. Okay. However, you cannot. So we've, we're, we've determined the basic reliability of the Bible as a historical document, especially in compared with other documents. Okay. So we just, at this point, we are saying the Bible is basically reliable. However, you cannot by this jump to inerrancy or inspiration. Remember, we were talking about what inspiration was, that God literally breathed this information into these men. And we're going to get to that, to that uh, later, too. Second premise, if you can verify the Bible is basically reliable, then you can investigate the person of Christ, right? Just like I was saying, if, if you can... Um, verify some, somebody like a Tacitus, then you can, ver then you can seek through that, the, his the history of Rome, and that kind of a thing. Same thing, if you can verify the Bible is basically reliable, then you can investigate the person of Christ, about what it's saying about him, and what he's saying. Okay, again, we, you, since we've learned, uh, realized that empirically, the, the Bible is just basically historic, it's just reliable, it's basically reliable historically, then we can investigate the, this person, okay? Now, interestingly, other religions have acquiesced to Christ as a prophet, like Islam. They think that he was the greatest prophet, even Judaism. So the three main, largest religions in the world, all monotheists, first of all, all claim Christ to, I mean, a lot of Jews basically say he was a good Jew. I mean, some of them are reluctant to say he's a prophet, but many other religions still call him a prophet. Again, most, the Muslims say that he was like the greatest prophet and all this kind of stuff. It's just interesting. Indeed, some say he was the great, and that's what Islam was. So, 
It is impossible, though, to have an inerrant Jesus without having an inerrant Bible. This is very important. The prophets, if he was a prophet, then everything he spoke was literally inspired by God. Okay? Everything that's recorded anyway, because that's what, that's what every prophet <laughs> is. You know? He speaks, thus saith the Lord. Right? However, Christ says, thus says I. Remember, we've made that point. But, so, but it's impossible to have an inerrant Jesus, a perfect and, and he's, all that he says is true. This is going to play a part later, too. Again, this is a growing deal. But if we cannot have an inerrant Jesus, so an infallible Jesus, a, a Jesus that only speaks truth, without having an inherent, inerrant Bible, without having also a perfect, authoritative Bible. Okay, we're going to kind of see that more as, as we go along as well. Now, Christ said, this is kind of a problem for people, and I've mentioned this briefly, so we're going to kind of talk about it a little bit more. Christ said that nobody knows the hour of his second coming, but that only the Father knew. Okay, let's just hang on a second. So he, he's saying that he doesn't know something. And remember, we've, we've talked about the Son of God. He, he, he's vera homo and vera deus. He's all together man, and he's all together God. Okay, but he's saying something that he doesn't know. So how, it, how is he a god? How is he God if he doesn't know something? Right. So that's going to be a problem for people. So this has led critics to attribute his limited knowledge touching his human nature, and therefore it was fine when he was wrong, such as when he said that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. They say they don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, just because they don't think it's. They see little. Um, writing differences, kind of literary differences kind of a thing. So they just assume he didn't. However, Christ said that Moses basically had written the Pentateuch. So, but they're saying it's fine that he's wrong. It's fine that he was wrong because touching his human nature, he was subject to error. Remember, to human is to err, or to err is human. And we'll get to that too. But this is a rather complicated debate, but for now, let's consider a few dimensions. I think we go into the first one next. Yeah, okay. So the critics say Christ was omniscient in his divine nature, but touching his human nature, he could be wrong about things like, like history and science. Now, the one of the first heresies the church had to combat, in fact, uh, in John's epistles, he talks specifically about the docetists. He talks about this heresy known as docetism. That comes from the Greek word doke, which basically means to seem. So what they were saying, especially through the Greek philosophical categories, they would basically say it would be God could never come in physical form without tarnishing himself kind of a thing, without, you know, um, corrupting his uh, deity kind of a thing. That's what they're saying. Well, that's what the Docetists said. So they basically said he just seemed like he came in the flesh. And John goes completely against that. Basically, this, this, that's the teaching of the Antichrist, that Christ, that Christ did not come in the flesh. So that, that's one thing. And so this is kind of what they're doing. Okay, they're kind of, they're, they're distinguishing them, but they really separate them. Because, so what they're saying is, Remember, we kind of looked at the Council of Chalcedon. Well, that's where they said Christ was vera homo and vera deus. But they, remember, he says he's not to be divided nor separated and all this other stuff, but they are separating. They're dividing the two natures. They are distinctive. They're distinct, but they're not separated. They're not divided. He is one 
person, okay, with two natures. Now, this is very difficult. This is something that you're going to have to meditate upon, and we can talk about this later. I'm very, I mean, I can't, that'd be great. Okay, so Aquinas, which we've looked at, but this is something that I completely disagree with him on. Aquinas' theory of the accommodation principle, which is translated into the Catholic Church too, but this is something I completely, we as reformers completely uh, disagree with. The accommodation principle is basically saying that, so Christ, because he's divine, did know everything, but basically, you know, he had to keep this, that a secret, you know, the, the hour of his second coming, he had to keep that a secret, and so he just told them they didn't know just to shut them up, basically, just to kind of get them. To, so, basically, then, therefore, he lied, right? That's the only extrapolation from that. If the accommodation principle is true, and if he's saying that, that, that he actually knew that, and then he told them that he didn't know that, that makes him out to be a liar. Okay, let's go back over here. It's that tremendous cascading effect, which, which when analyzed with a human team, so... When you have, when a person is in a pedagogical role, when, when the, any teacher, any teacher that you come across, the student is at, ultimately at the mercy of the, what the teacher says. And it's incumbent on any educator or any teacher of any sort to, to never, certainly never deliberately teach wrong things, but it's important, well, like when, when we have a question-answer situation, if you ask me a question I don't know, it's essential on the teacher's part to tell you I don't know. And it's important to understand, as a teacher, I mean, any of us, any, any teacher out there other than Christ is fallible. We are prone to error, and our knowledge is limited to certain things. Like if you ask me the doctrine of justification by faith alone, if you ask me about my confidence in that doctrine and, and what it implies and all that kind of thing, I'd say absolutely, absolutely, no question about it. Would, if you ask me the same question about eschatology, so the end times kind of a thing, the doctrine of the end times, I'd say no. I, I think there's a lot of study uh, left to be done, and I don't think any of that's really concrete and set in stone. So there's, there's a variety of certainty. Remember, we were talking about mystery. There are some things that are less mysterious. There are some things that are still mis more mysterious, even within the teacher. Christ was not that way. But it's important that the, the student is basically at the mercy of the credibility of the teacher. Right? Okay. This critical position is impossible to maintain for many reasons, not the least of which is Christ said that he said nothing by his own authority, but only that which he has been given by the Father. That's essential. So basically, again, if, he's, if he said nothing by his own authority, and then he said he didn't know, that's because he didn't know. And that's going to be something. We can talk about that a little bit. I think I do here in a second. But... So let's just wait. I'm pretty sure I involved this. <laughs> All right. So the critics say uh, Christ is omniscient and is... Yeah. I, thought, I think this is basically what we just saw. Okay, so instead of teaching error on the subject of his return, uh, he was simply silent on the matter. That's what, that's what Aquinas thought. Okay, Christ's prophet was, inf was infallible as uh, he only spoke what the Father told him, like we said. Okay, therefore, if he ever erred in this respect, he was either a fool or a liar. Uh, um, uh, C.S. Lewis 
in one of his arguments uh, for Christ being the Christ and the Son of God kind of a thing, it, and because a lot of people will say he was he was re- he was just a good moral teacher, you know, he was just a really good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis makes the point of Christ did not leave that as a possibility for us. That that is not an option. He did not leave that as an option. He's either a maniac or he was a liar or a devil, basically, and that's ultimately right. We cannot accept him as a good moral teacher if he's lying all the time. As any other teacher, we wouldn't we would refuse that. If you know, no matter how great their teaching is, if they're just continually lying about everything, we we would not accept them as a good moral teacher. How can you be a good moral teacher if you're always lying, right? Okay. Okay. A word about well, that's what I already did. Okay. I'm sorry. I kind of have this. Scattered. Okay. In a word, it has so. In a word, this has less to do with Christ's authority, but rather his sinlessness. Again, if he did know the hour of his coming and lied, that's a sin. He was perfectly sinless. So again, this has this argument has less to do with his authority, at, at, rather as much as it does with his sinlessness, which has to do with his authority, but, so this particular part though has less to do with his authority, more to do with his sinlessness. We cannot admit Christ as Lord without accepting his doctrines as perfect, including his teaching of the inerrancy of scripture. This is what caused the Reformation. It's it's going back to the fountain. Remember the Latin right now, but ad fontes or something, but back to the original documents going back to the actual source of authority. The church had come into and built all, they, they had all these creeds, all these councils, all these traditions, and she, it morphed into just teaching that. You hear very little about the scripture now in the Catholic Church. Very little. The, the, the authority of the Catholic Church is tradition, the Mass, uh, the Eucharist, all sorts of things. It is not the Bible and which has always been the source of authority for the Jew before Christ and now the Christian after Christ, okay? It it is not based on any man but Christ, okay? Okay. So, Karl Barth, remember we had talked about him, uh, he called this Biblical docetism. So remember, when, when we were looking at the two natures of Christ, and so the people back in those days were saying that it, Christ only seemed to uh, have a physical body. So what he's saying is, um, yeah, okay, what he was saying is that we are now uh, kind of infusing this deism into the Bible where it doesn't actually exist. So he's calling this biblical docetism because it was only written by men. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, yeah, let me go ahead and get into that a little bit, because we, we talked about that. So that's what he's attacking. He's saying to err is human, and therefore, you know, because it was written all, by all these men, we should expect that parts are going to be wrong. And look, there are some, like, little pesky problems. I mean, for instance, in Proverbs, there's a part where Solomon, or the writer, says, um, uh, answer not a fool according to his fool- folly. And then, on the same page, it says, answer a fool, according to his folly. How do you, how do you, you know, combine those? How do you, well, quickly, there's, there are times you come to an obstinate person who, remember, like when I was telling you, 
my friend, my old friend, basically got to the point where he admitted that what he believed was absurd. That is a fool you do not answer according to his folly. So answer not according to that folly. You're done. There's, remember, we looked at the argument uh, um, in, I, oh no, what was it? Um, reductio ad, ad absurdum. Remember, that's what uh, uh, Paul had done, actually, in his record of the resurrection. He says, you know, if Christ isn't raised, these are the implications. So you take the other person's argument, and you work it out into its logical outworking, basically, and show the absurdity of that. So you take their position, you just accept it. You say, okay, let's just, let's just assume that's true. Well, what are the ramifications of that? So that is answering a fool according to his folly. You see what I'm saying? So those two things can be mended just in different ways, right? A contradiction is A cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship, but they can be in not at the same time and not at the same relationship, okay? Okay. So, um, so he added that the Bible is not the inherent word of God inherently, remember, so because it was made, it was written by men, but when super, and we already looked at, you know, that, that whole idea to err as human is, is fallacious somewhat because we do see people getting and doing things as perfectly as they can be done, right? We get, see people getting hundreds on tests, all this kind of a thing. Okay. Um, so, superintended by the Holy Ghost. So, so he says the, the word of God is not the word. It's not inerrant inherently, but when superintended by the Holy Ghost, it becomes the word of God. So, in other words, this is just a book. It's just a book at first. It is not in itself the word of God. This is what he's saying. This is not what we believe. <laughs> what he's saying is this is just a book. At first, it's just a book. But when, then when a Christian starts to read it, and eventually when, when, when the Holy Ghost decides to superintend and go ahead and, you know, breathe into us, then it becomes the Word of God. This is nonsense. Christ had uh, told his, uh, some of his critics, some of the Pharisees, that they, they were straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. If anybody is straining out the gnat and swallowing the candle, uh, the camel. It's these people. It is these people. It is all these histor historian criticisms that are using completely unbased criteria to denounce the Bible. We talked a little bit about Jesus Seminar. We can get into that at some point. But it was all nonsense after nonsense after nonsense. And you're just going to have to take my word for that for now. I mean, you can go seek that out for yourselves, or we can talk about it later. Okay, so uh, Christ asked Nicodemus if he couldn't believe when he spoke of earthly things. Remember, how could he understand if he were to speak uh, of heavenly things? These people want to believe what Christ said regarding heavenly things, but not earthly things. Talk about swallowing the camel again. But this whole generation has given up to swallowing the camel. We are going to get into that even more in the Bible study, but this is very, very important. We use, remember we were talking about source and the credibility of that source and all of that. We, sadly, even as Christians, have given up, have given up so much to the secular world, 
whether the psychologists, whether the naturalists, whatever. We've just acquiesced. We've just cashed in our chips. No, we must be those who refuse to play dead. No, this is the battle. And it's waging now. It's waging right now here in this house. Every one of you, every one of us, has been influenced by this culture, by this society, and we need to learn the truth out of that. Okay? Truth outside of that. I feel like I, I was born in the wrong generation. I mean, honestly, you know, through, through all of my studies and, no, you know, I feel like I don't belong here, you know. And that's a, that's a critical um, attitude, but it's one that's true, and it's one that any faithful man or woman of God has had the same battle with. We will see the wisdom of the spirit of the age, especially in our time, and how that has heavily influenced not only the world, but the American church. And that's what we're going to kind of get into next uh, in our next study. study. Any questions? No? Everybody good? All right. Continuing. All right. So, in lowliness, my tongue confesses to thy exaltation, for thou madest heaven and earth, this heaven which I see, and this earth on which I walk, from which came this earth that I carry about me, thou didst make. But where is that heaven of heavens, O Lord, of which we hear in the words of the song, the heavens of heavens, the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, but the earth he hath, he hath given to the children of men. Where is the heaven that we cannot see in relation to, to which all that we can see is earth? For this whole corporeal creation has been beautifully formed, though not everywhere in its entirety, and our earth is the lowest of these levels. Still compared with that heaven of heavens, even the heaven of our own earth is only earth. Indeed, it is not absurd to call each of those two great bodies earth in comparison with that ineffable heaven, which is the Lord's and not for the sons of men. Okay, first of all, I just have to mention, he uses the heaven of heavens, and we see that a lot in our Bible. We have to understand, for, in the Hebrew, that really means the highest heaven. So like the heaven above the heavens, the ultimate, the, the preeminent heaven. When, you, when we say Christ is the king of kings, in the Hebrew categories, it's really he is the king above kings. He is the king. He is the preeminent king way beyond any other king. That's what he's, talk, that's what he's talking about. Where is this heaven? Where is this heaven higher, than, higher than, than any of the other heavens, which are fixed to the earth, basically, which are fixed to the cosmos? Let's put it that way. So what he's saying is, where is this heaven, this heaven in which you abide, that, 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 that's so beyond this one? How do I find, how do I find that? Well, his argument is, in this whole book is the scriptures. This is not meant for the sons of men. Let me say this. I thought, I think I was going to wait until um, our next study, but let me go ahead and say this. Remember, we were talking about there are no innocent natives anywhere. Remember? Very scary thought. Remember also, though, last week and the week before, we were talking about um, men and women when they finally come to uh, redemption. God gives them grace to come to themselves, right? And that doesn't have to come through the Bible. Again, God gives his general revelation to anybody, to everybody. So whenever a man or woman truly comes to themselves, 
they will find God. There are no innocent natives, but you don't need necessarily the gospel at first to be saved. You, you do, okay, you need the grace of God at first, but he's the one who changes the disposition of your heart to seek him. And seeking him, you will find him. There are no innocent natives. There really aren't. But that's not because the gospel hasn't been there. It's because they've suppressed the truth of God. That's all there is. So, again, even the native, by the grace of God, can find God. With or without the Bible at first. Okay, and I guarantee you, God will supply him with the Bible soon after. All right? All right.